So I, uh, I take Mondays off, and I get to spend the entire day with my two-year-old son, Thomas. It's a new kind of rest that I'm uh, experiencing right now. So he and I are currently playing a game which I like to call, Now What? If you've ever been around toddlers, if you've ever raised toddlers, you are familiar with this game. It's really simple. Essentially, it works like this. I watch as his curiosity leads him into uh, new and most often very precarious situations. And once he reaches that point of no return, he looks at me with curiosity and terror in his eyes, to which I reply, now what? I don't think he loves the game, to be honest with you. I think he wants me to swoop in. And really, I'm practicing uh, playing this game. Really, I'm practicing kind of keeping my own anxiety at bay uh, so that I'm not worried about him falling you know, off of things. Right now, he's climbing on the stools and getting on the counter and stuff. But I'm learning that toddlers experience crossing these boundaries into unknown territory, unknown frontiers, like daily, like every day. And, of course, we know that uh, as we get older, these experiences plateau. But life is filled with now what moments. I've had my own experience with this question throughout the years, most recently toward the end of seminary. And uh, I've mentioned this before, but my journey through seminary was uh, very long and windy, which included at one point dropping out of seminary, um, which is a story for a different sermon or a different context entirely. Uh, But once I went back to seminary, I wasn't sure. I didn't go back because I was sure that God was calling me into ministry, though I had a little bit of a sense. I went back because I wanted to find out how, if, and how I could live as a Christian with integrity in the modern world. I had all kinds of questions. I had all kinds of doubts about what that would look like. So I went back to seminary to try to answer that question for myself, to to wrestle through that for myself. And along the way, through that process, I realized that for me to be a Christian with integrity meant to respond to God's call in my life to be a pastor, to help other people discover the gospel of grace and to find ways to live out of that grace in their everyday life. But once I turned that corner to live into that calling, to respond to that calling, Once I did that, I experienced the same kind of curiosity, the same kind of terror that I think my son currently experiences on a daily basis. And the prayer that I wrote down, which I honestly continue to pray even to this day in my last year of seminary was, dear God, and sometimes that was a little bit more anxious than others, dear God, you called me into this beautiful yet messy thing called your church. And I followed you here. Like, I I showed up. Now what? Like, what's next? And I'm sure that many of you have experienced a moment or a season like this. I'm sure from the prayer requests that many of you are in transition right now. You're at a, a moment. You are in transition. You're standing at the border of a new frontier. Maybe you are uh, about to graduate from high school. It's graduation week. That's awesome. Congratulations. If you're graduating high school and you're off to go uh, maybe to college in the fall or some other opportunity, or maybe you're just coming home for the summer and you're trying to figure out if you need a job, or maybe you are uh, you know, headed into a new relationship, or maybe you're trying to find your way out of a broken one. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you're not really even sure why. Maybe your faith is just a hint of what it once was. Or maybe you just are discovering faith for the first time and you showed up to worship this morning. All of these moments, all of these moments lead us to ask, now what? What's next? We're all kind of simultaneously curious and terrified. And I think most of all we're wondering if God is going to be wherever we're going next. The book of Acts is a book which begs this question. Now what? In our text for this week, we get the first glimpse of how the disciples first began to answer that question. Now what? If you remember from last week, Thomas uh, preached through the story that described Christ's ascension when he left the disciples, when he ascended into heaven from uh, where he is now, reigning at the hand of God the Father Almighty. But when he left, he promised that the Holy Spirit would soon fall upon them and fill them up, equip them for the ministry that he had sent them out to do. And as they're kind of standing there, remember, they're standing there, looking up, wondering what's happening, probably thinking, like, now what? Like, Peter, you know, like, what do we do now? And these two angelic figures appear and kind of question, like, what are you, why are you still staring into the sky? Jesus is gone, but there's work to do. There's work to do. So our story this morning follows this story. It picks up where we left off last week. We'll be in Acts 1, 12 through 26. I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons and said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead become desolate and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of overseer. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also known as Eustace, and Matthias. And then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, take my words and use them to amplify your reconciling and liberating eternal word. 
and take all of our thoughts and transform them so that each and every thought might be held captive to Jesus. And God, then take our lives and fill us with your Holy Spirit and sweep us out from here into the world you love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Acts is a a collection of stories which tell the story of the early church, these first Christians, and the birth of this Christian community. This new community shares their life together in a way that only makes sense because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Dorothy Day used to say that we as a Christian community have to live in such a way that our lives wouldn't make sense, that our lives would be unintelligible if the gospel were not true. The Christian community has always lived in response to the fact that God has done something decisive in Jesus Christ. And the people whose lives had testified to what God had done, the power that God had revealed in the resurrection, they testified to this power. But the real evidence for this power was not so much that um, there was an empty tomb or that they had seen a dead man raised from the dead and walk around. Of course, that was true, and they said that. They let other people know that. But the real evidence, the most powerful evidence, I think, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ was this new community that had formed. People were together who had no other reason to be together. I mean, even in this this little uh, story that we heard this morning, this is a countercultural community. Men and women are gathered together as mutual participants in ministry, discerning together what God is calling them to do. There were Jews and there were Gentiles later in the book of Acts. There were slaves and free. And they were all sharing their lives together. They were sharing their money. They were sharing their homes. They were sharing uh, their burdens, their joys. And there wasn't any reason that they should be doing this other than to say that Jesus had done it, that they had been shaped by the story of Jesus. Which begs the question to us today, is our life together as Covenant Presbyterian Church, as a Christian community here, is there any reason for us gathering together other than to say that Jesus has done it? When the outside world looks at our community, do they say, I have no idea why those people worship together. Must be Jesus. Is that the story that we tell? You see, later we'll see that that they called them Christians first at Antioch because they didn't know what else to call them. They didn't fit into the neat categories of Jew or Gentile before that they had kind of categorized everyone by. They didn't know what to call them, so they called them Christians because Jesus Christ had formed this new community. They were little Christs. So last week Thomas mentioned that what ties this book uh, together theologically is that this new community was formed, was sent out. Beginning with the disciples, they were sent out into the world to be witnesses of all that God had done in Jesus Christ, this this power that had been revealed in the resurrection. The whole point of the formation of this new community, the whole point was that they might be sent out into the world to tell other people what they'd seen, what they'd heard, and what they'd experienced as their lives had intersected with Jesus of Nazareth. And the text that we've just read this morning, I think, gives us a wonderful vignette of how the disciples first responded to that mission that Jesus gave them. How they responded to their own, how what, moment. Now if you spend any time reading the Gospels, you'll know that 
the disciples are not always cast in the best light. Like they're kind of the village idiots at times. Like they are always a step behind Jesus. They're always kind of missing the point, asking the wrong questions. You know, questions like, you know, I really wonder, like, who is the greatest disciple among us? Right? Like, that is the wrong question to be asking as you're following the Savior of the world. It's the wrong question. But not here. It's not the picture that we get at the beginning of Acts. Luke tells us the story that the disciples go back to Jerusalem where Jesus had instructed them to go. And they devote themselves to prayer to prepare for the mission that God has called them to. Like, these are the same disciples who could not pray with Jesus. Like, they, they couldn't stay awake. They kept falling asleep when Jesus was there. And now he says that they are devoting themselves to prayer together to discern what God is calling them to do. And Peter, like Peter, gets up and starts preaching. He starts interpreting the witness of the Old Testament to help them discern how they're going to fill this empty um, spot, this, this, this extra disciple. Who are we going to choose? How are we going to choose? And notice that there aren't any arguments here about who the greatest disciple is or what might make the greatest disciple. Suddenly the only criteria is who can join us? Who can join us in telling the story? Who has been there with us since Jesus was baptized? Who watched him heal people and forgive sinners? Who knows about the kingdom of God? And who knows that Jesus was raised from the dead? Who can join us to tell that story? And this is the beginning of the formation of a missional community, which we today know as the church. And we've talked recently a lot about what it means to be a missional church. What does that mean? What does it mean to be missional? I think fundamentally what we mean by missional is that God is a missionary God. Mission is not primarily an activity of the church, but an attribute of God. God sends God's self into the world in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, and God is up to something. God is reconciling the world to himself. And he's sending, he's inviting us, and he's sending us to be part of that mission of reconciliation, to, bring, to reconcile all things together in Jesus Christ. So when we talk about being a missional community, what we mean is that all of us are participating in God's mission to reconcile all things in Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we talk about a missional community. A really easy way for us to remember this is to say that the church does not have a mission, but that the mission of God has a church. Covenant does not have a mission. The mission of God includes the work of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We're invited to be part of that mission. You might be wondering, well, how do we do that? That sounds great. How do I participate in God's mission to reconcile all things together in Jesus Christ? Well, I think our text for this morning is a wonderful story, but it's often overlooked because it's sandwiched between the ascension of Christ and the descension of the Holy Spirit. Two fairly large events in the life of the church and very important events. But somehow, this story kind of gets overshadowed. And the whole like, story about Judas and the field, like, that also kind of like, distracts people. <laughs> but I think that this story is really, really important for how we understand ourselves as a missional com community. It gives us a guide to becoming this community ourselves. 
And I want you to notice two really important things. First, the community gathers together to discern God's spirit. Right? They don't just gather together to retreat from the world for an end in and of itself, but they gather together to pray. To pray. And when we pray, what we're doing is we're asking that God's presence would, would be felt among us, that we would be able to know what it is that God's calling us to do, that God would speak to us through the interpretation of Scripture and through our prayer together. Remember that a missional community is, is a community which is attuned to what God is up to in the world. This is a very subtle point, but I think very important. And that is to say that, that we are not the builders. We are not the expanders. We are not the advancers of God's kingdom. God is the builder and the expander, the advancer of God's kingdom. Right? When the, when the disciples uh, first kind of asked Jesus uh, in, the, in the first part of Acts, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' response was, it's not for you to know the time or the period set by the Father's authority, but you will receive power. And when you do, you will be my witnesses to the kingdom that God is building. Our job is, is not to build it, but to participate by witnessing it, by pointing it out, by announcing its arrival, by inviting other people to belong to it. Come on, come, this, this is a kingdom wherein no one is a stranger. Come be part of it. So instead of building the kingdom of God, we seek the kingdom of God. And we seek the kingdom of God by seeking where the Holy Spirit is at work. Last fall when uh, I was teaching the Explore membership class, um, someone asked a question. And uh, the question that she raised was, and I think that this question is central to what it means to be a missional community. The question she raised was, um, yes, can you tell me what the Holy Spirit is doing here? I was like, what? Uh, can you ask me some other questions about like what time classes are and you know, like, stuff that I can answer? I mean, that's a wonderful question. And it blew me away. It blew me away. It shouldn't have surprised me because that is the question that we should be asking. Notice that her question wasn't, uh, you know, like, what is your church doing? Or how will your church fit my needs? What she was asking was, what is God doing through the ministry of this church? And secondly, and subtly, are you paying attention to it? Do you know? Can you point it out? Can you claim that God is at work here through our community, through the work that we're doing, through the, the things that God is calling us to do? You see, the central question to any missional community is to ask, why has God called us together in this time and in this place? Why has God called us together with all of our gifts, with all of our abilities, with all of our different callings, with all of our own personalities? Why has God called us together? For this time, for Austin, Texas in 2016, that's the question we must ask ourselves every time we get together, every time we gather to discern what God is up to. So the first thing is that they gather together to discern God's spirit. But that's not the only thing that they do. The second thing that happens in this text is that they become something more than disciples. They become apostles. They live into that sentness. The community is preparing to be sent out, to be scattered. And they've got to find out who's going to join them. They're one short. Who's going to join them in the leadership of this new community? 
Up until this point, they've mostly just been learning from Jesus, following him around, listening to him teach, participating in his ministry. But to be called by Jesus as a disciple always means to be sent out as an apostle. So if we're going to be a missional community, we have to bring together discipleship and mission into something I like to call missional discipleship. Like, we gotta, we got to bring these two together, you know? Like, discipleship and mission, these aren't two separate things. But they come together and they feed into one another. We come together to learn and to be equipped so that we might be sent out into the world that God loves. And we come back asking the questions that we, that we raised as we were in the world, loving people in our communities. And, and okay, well, let's, let's figure out, uh, you know, let's read Scripture and figure out how we might respond to this thing what God might be saying to us in this time and place. These two things work together, discipleship and mission. We see that first here with this first community of Christians. Now, I know that this idea of being a witness is kind of uh, maybe, maybe raises some issues with you. Maybe uh, it has some baggage along with it, this word. Maybe you think your, your mind immediately goes to um, awkward conversations with people, with complete strangers. Maybe your mind goes to um, kind of cliche or kitschy like gospel tracts. Maybe your mind goes to annoying street preachers. I don't know. My mind goes there sometimes too. But I can also tell you of another place that my mind goes, another image that I have when I think of the word witness. And I just want to throw that up here on the screen. Take a look at this painting. I know that there's a lot going on in this painting, but if you notice to the left of Jesus is John the Baptist, and he's pointing to Jesus. He's just pointing to Jesus. And this painting, I first learned about this painting when I learned that this painting hung above the desk of Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a 20th century theologian um, from whom I've, I've learned a lot. And it hung above his desk to remind him of the proper goal of all theology. Barth said that the all proper theology should be like this pointing hand, pointing away from itself to God who for his part completely turns to us in Jesus Christ. And I don't often argue with old Bart, but I would add not just our theology, but our very lives. What if our marriages, what if our families, what if our uh, schoolwork, what if our life in our community, what if our gifts of hospitality, what if our finances, what if all of our lives could be summed up in that pointing hand, pointing to Christ? Only then could we be known as a community whose lives are only intelligible because the gospel is true. Only then. And I know that uh, it's under very different circumstances now than it was uh, which led the, this, this Christ's disciples to ask, now what? But I think that we are experiencing our own now what even now. We're asking, now what? In our own time place. Researchers and scholars have told us that Christendom has all but collapsed in the West. That for the major part of American history, the church contributed to a dominant form of culture which left its broad imprint on um, Christian, you know, we had Christian language and Christian values and Christian expectations for moral decisions and moral behaviors. For better and for worse, the church for a really long time in America exercised influence on the broad shape of American culture. But that's becoming less and less true. I read yesterday that the projected job growth for clergy from 2012 
2022 is under 1%, which at least tell you, tells you that the people who are like researching this stuff have little hopes for the Church of Jesus Christ over the next 10 years. And it's true, there's studies that are showing how seminaries are shutting down, that they're, gonna, they're merging with other communities because enrollment is at an all-time low. And even though Covenant is a vibrant and growing community, we all know that there's a ground shift happening in our culture. And not only has Christendom or cultural Christianity kind of come and gone, but we live in what Charles Taylor calls the secular age, where faith, even the most devout faith, experiences tremendous doubt. At the same time, he, he says, or he observes that while it was virtually impossible not to believe in God 500 years ago, virtually impossible not to believe in God 500 years ago, today, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. This argument that is in the, sec the secular age is an age of contested belief, where belief is no longer assumed or axiomatic. It's a mixture of faith and doubt. And I know that many of you experience this either personally or you experience it through a spouse, um, maybe a child. But you know that faith is complicated. And it leaves us with this question. Now what? Jesus, you've been raised from the dead. You've ascended on high. You sit at the right hand of God the Father. You've sent us your Holy Spirit in this world. Now what? And I know that this moment is making many Christians really anxious. I know that I don't love to hear that projected job growth for clergy is under 1%. But I find great comfort in this text, in the story of Acts. We don't need to be anxious because the same spirit which descended on that first community of Christians years ago is here with us now, filling us up with that same resurrection power, equipping us as we gather together and then sending us out from here to bear witness to the love of God and the mission of God to reconcile all things in Jesus Christ. We don't need to be anxious, friends, because we live our lives in the promise of the Holy Spirit. God has spoken God's final word in Jesus Christ, but he is not yet done speaking it. And through our witness, God continues to speak. So like the early Christians, we continue to gather together, not as an end in of itself, but together to discern what God is up to here and now in our own time and place so that we can join with God. We can seek the kingdom of God by seeking where God is at work. And then we must go as sent people. As Thomas reminded us last week, we don't just live in our neighborhoods, but we've been sent there. We don't just go to school, we've been sent there. We don't just go to our jobs, but we've been sent there. We are sent people. And everywhere we go, we are called to translate the good news of the gospel for those who have not yet experienced its transformative power. That's what God is summoning us to do. That's what God is calling us to do. What I find utterly fascinating about this book of Acts is that the story is left open-ended. It's not tied up very neatly. And I think that's because the apostolic ministry of Jesus Christ, of telling that story, continues through us today. The risen Christ invites each of us, whether we are in middle school, in college, 
or towards the end of our life, to add our stories to the stories we find here. May our lives only be intelligible because the gospel is true. May they only make sense because Jesus was raised from the dead. And may we be a community that when people look at it, they say, I have no idea. Jesus must be doing something there. May all of our lives be a pointing hand to Jesus Christ who turns to us in love and salvation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give thanks for the promise of the life in the Spirit. God, it's easy for us to be anxious about all of the things that are going on in our world, all of the things that are going on in our own lives. For good reason, we are anxious. But you've given us your Spirit so that we might live in the comfort of your life, that we might have the power to be sent out and to be bold witnesses, to tell others of the transformation that we ourselves have experienced as our lives have intersected with you. We ask that you might continue to send us out, that you call us together, and that you send us out. In your name we pray. Amen.